1: So I'd like to talk to you about a very difficult topic today as we begin a new series on male pattern baldness. I'm just kidding. I'm not only, I'm not only a recipient, I'm the president. No, I, uh, seriously, it's not that. It's actually a much tougher topic today. We start a series today on, entitled Love and Marriage. And yes, we are talking about God's purpose Marriage, And some of you have not experienced that the way you had hoped and or desired in your current marriages. Some of you have come through divorces that are messy and ugly. Some of you have come through breakups and relationships prior to marriages that are messy and ugly. And so you ask, uh, several people have been asking, I don't fit the stereotype of what seems that the subject matter is going to be on. Why should I go to a class on marriage? Why should I do this? Why should I do that with regard to the subject matter? Because it is the oldest ceremony known to mankind, ordained by God for a very special and specific purpose. And I want to talk about it in a way that I had really not anticipated talking about this several months ago. I knew we needed to come into the fall programming focusing on the family, focusing on marriage and healthy families, focusing on parenting. Next month, we're going to be looking at dysfunctional families of the Bible and try to learn from their mistakes as well as from the way God used them through those mistakes. But I, I changed my mind on this series months ago. Can I be honest, can I confess something? I hate marriage books, I do. I, I, I have a ton of them on my shelves, I've read a multitude of marriage books, marriage gurus, relationship gurus, most of them leave me with a pit in my stomach. And it's because I think they deal with symptoms more than the core issues of what's broken in relationships. And so, you won't hear me often recommending books on marriage. I want you to go to God's word. Because that's the basis for where this relationship started in the first place. But as I was planning and preparing for this message, for these message series, I thought as a culture, we have completely forgotten the basics. No, we've rejected the basics. And we've actually raised up a generation and are raising up generations without even any core basics and fundamentals on what healthy relationships are to even look like. We don't even have a semblance of that in our society today. I, I started noticing a trend several years ago, actually probably well over a decade ago, um, where programming was you just shack up with somebody that's how you do it you try it on you kick the tires on the relationship first in every way before you get into a really committed relationship because if it doesn't work out you don't want to have to go through a messy divorce you know one of the reasons divorce rates are going down in our culture is because people aren't getting married they're just living together anymore they don't see the need for it. It's why why do I have to go through the ceremony of something when I don't necessarily have to? Plus, taxes and all that. You know, it's I will I might lose some of these th- grant or not some of these things from the government if I get married. If I'm touching on a sensitive topic for you, I don't apologize but I ask you to listen. And I know the name of this sermon today is going to Probably unpack some difficult things. Because today, our sermon title is Male and Female. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would ever have to do a sermon on the distinctives of male and female. One of those things that I thought was a given throughout the course of my time in ministry, even in my education through uh, the ministry Bible school where I went to get my undergrad and the seminary where I went, it it was never an issue. But we've come to a day and age where, from our pulpits, we don't need to get preachy, but we need to teach the truth of God's word in a way that's clear, logical, and understandable. Not to crush or hurt anybody's feelings, but to truly see what was God's original intent. And before we get to any relational aspect of healthy relationships, we have to define who marriage is between. And that's not a safe topic to talk on today. Especially in a public setting like this. Especially when it's being broadcast on TV. Especially when it's live streamed on our social media platforms. So I don't know where this will land out there. I'm not even sure where it might even land in here today. But before you get your dander up and the hair on your neck raised like a dog ready to pounce, hear me out because this is important. G.K. Beale, in his book, We Become What We Worship, writes this. When my two daughters, Hannah and Nancy, were about two or three years old, I noticed how they imitated and reflected my wife and me. They cooked, they fed, they disciplined their animals and dolls, their play animals, just the way my wife cooked, fed, and disciplined them. They gave play medicine to their dolls just the way we gave them medicine when they were sick. Our daughters also prayed with their stuffed animals and dolls the way we prayed with them before bedtimes and at mealtimes. They talked on their toy phones with some the same kind of Texas accent that my wife uses when she talks on the phone. It was amazing, he writes. Most people, I'm sure, have seen this with children, but children only begin what we continue to do as adults. We imitate, don't we? We reflect Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, the things and the groups and the people we are around most often. It's more comfortable to fit in than to run against the grain, isn't it? And so we become imitators of that which is around us because it's easier for us to adapt to situations when we fit in. Most people, he goes on to write, can think back to junior high, high school, or even college when they were in a group, and to one degree or another, whether consciously or unconsciously, they ended up reflecting or resembling that peer group. Can you relate? Yeah? I was one of those oddballs that didn't fit in, believe it or not. It's not hard to believe, I'm sure. I know it's hard to believe, isn't it, Bill? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. The only way I fit in is I can make people laugh. I know it's a stretch. I've gone into the dad joke arena now and that doesn't usually work at all. People are laughing at you more than with you in that regard. Right? So, but I remember that's my senior year, I was my superlative was class clown. And I wore that with pride because I could hang out with the jocks and I could hang out with the punk, I was 80s, early 90s kid, I could hang out with the punk rockers, I could hang out with, you know, any group of people, because I was like a chameleon in that regard, they liked having me around, because I could make them laugh, right, even the bullies, (laughs) do something to make me laugh, (laughs) you know, and and then I would not get beat up, and so, and I never got in a fight, because I could always make people laugh, at least I thought I could. But some of you understand what it's like to acclimate to a certain group. Maybe you gravitate toward a certain group because it feels more comfortable to your personality time, the way you were raised, or what you experience, and so you imitate that even more when you're around a group of people that seem to reflect the same values and ideas that you do. He goes on to say, members of the group may have worn polo shirts. (laughs) It's dating this guy, right? I remember when polo shirts were in, and they were expensive back in the day, and you'd wear these, you know, collared polo shirts if you were a prep, right? But that was the thing to do. It had had to have the right logo on it. It couldn't have been a knockoff. And you'd wear the same color sometimes. Your group might even have a color that you would wear of those polo shirts. Others may have been in a group that was very athletic, you know, the jocks, and in order to be accepted and to fit into that group, you had to walk and talk and move and at least show some athletic prowess to be able to be accepted in that group. And still, unfortunately, others ran with, in my day and age, we called them the druggies, uh, the ones that hung out in the bathroom, smoked, and, you know, all that stuff, I wasn't a part of that crowd. Like I said, I could acclimate to different crowds, but I could never really absorb into a crowd. In some way, I was a bit of an outcast myself. And some of people say, well, you use humor to mask your insecurities. Guilty. He goes on to write, all of us, even adults, reflect what we are around. We think we grow out of that in middle school and high school, and we leave that behind for the real world but we just, we just morph into the same realities that we had when we were in <coughs> excuse me, high school, college, or middle school. It's just a different group in a workplace or a different group at the ball field or a different group here or there, maybe even a different group at your local church assembly. He goes on to write, these contemporary examples follow a very ancient pattern that had its roots in the beginning of history. Genesis 1, God created humans to be image-bearing people. Did you know that? We were actually created to reflect an image. Do you know what image that was? God's. But what happens in Genesis 3 when the fall occurs and sin enters the world? The image becomes distorted we then begin to reflect the image of that which we worship, whether it's ourselves, our proclivities to certain temptations or sins. What is it that you reflect? Do you reflect a model of success that says, I have to work and work and work to show myself approved in the secular world? Or maybe... It's, it's I've got to keep up with the Joneses. And if your last name is Jones, that's just a figure of speech. I'm not calling you out, okay? But I've got to, I got to wear the same clothes, drive the same vehicles. If I'm going to fit into this context in this work environment or rise to the occasion of success in the corporate ladder there, then I have to drive the part, smell the part, look the part, eat the part, in order to even be looked at, you become and you reflect that which you worship. But as image bearers of God, we were always created to reflect the image of God and not the image of us. And you say, that sounds really selfish. God is a selfish, mean, vindictive, and hateful God. We're told we're not supposed to be selfish, but he can be. Well, let's look at the contrast. Are you holy, perfect, righteous, and you do everything right all the time in every way? No, you do not. And if you said you did, you're a liar, which makes you already in the bad spot of really realizing that you're not perfect, right? But one of the things we know about God is that he is perfect, He is holy, he is righteous, he is just, and all of his ways are good, even when they err on the side of wrath and justice, because God, a good and loving God, has to be just and has to bring wrath when there's sin involved. Now, it may not happen in the timing you want it to, because you think your enemy should get struck down by lightning, but so should we, let's be honest. So when we compare ourselves to an all-good and all-loving and all-holy God, then what should we be reflecting to the rest of the world? What was intended for us to reflect to the rest of the rest of the world? An all-good and all-loving and all-holy God reflected through us, through our actions, our language, the way we treat one another, in our, working, or in our work ethic, in the ethics of how we do business. So, where do we go with this today? We look at the differences between the two image bearers, male and female, as we look to Genesis chapter 1. I'm starting with verse 26 today. You can turn there with me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It reads like this Then God said, He's already gotten through five days of creation, and He saved the best for last the animals, and then. The humans. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image. Some of your versions of scripture may say man. If you translate that from the Hebrew, it means mankind. And if that's too sexist for you, it means humanity. And if that's too sexist for you, the New Living Translation says human beings. It's as neutral as we can get here. But it's not meaning specifically one person, at least right here. Let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. Who existed before creation? God, like us. See, schizophrenic? What, what is God? No, God existed in a perfect unity as Father, Son, and Spirit. Talked about that this morning in my class. What is the Trinity? You'll never see the word Trinity Trinitarian, or any Trinitarian language in the Bible, but you will read about the different personhoods of God. Three persons, one essence. We call the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. So now God, Father, Son, and Spirit is saying, let us, who dwell together perfectly in unity as one, create human beings in our own image. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Well, that's not good, especially if you think that humans are just a part of the animal kingdom. If you equate humans at the same status and level as animals— then who are we to rule over the rest of the created order, all the living creatures on earth? We see how we do that today. And listen, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not preaching politics here. But in the right context, God put humans, his image bearers, who were perfect in the beginning, in charge of the whole created order. And if they are to steward it well, they would steward it exactly the way God had designed it. But as image bearers who go their own way and do their own thing and worship their own other gods, little g, and we reflect those things onto the rest of the created order, how do we reign over the earth? Not too well at times, do we? We don't steward it well. But let me not digress. Let's continue. And this is the verse we're going to hone in on today. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Did you catch that pronoun? But that's referring to two, not one. Male and female, he created them. Now, I know a lot of conservative and traditional theologians will point back to this to show that this is exactly God's design. And I would be one of those. But there are those theologians today and biblical scholars at some of the tops of our highest academic institutions in theology that have said, no, that's not really how you should interpret that. Actually, God is a non-sexed being. He's neither male nor female. Then why do we refer to him in the masculine pronouns? We refer to him in masculine pronouns because of the way it was handed down to Moses who wrote these things and other authors so that we can utilize what's called anthropomorphic language. Do you know what anthropomorphism is? It's a real big word that means we attribute certain things to God from a human perspective so that we can try to wrap our minds around who he really is. You see verbiage like this in scripture, the hand of God. Have you ever heard read or heard that spoken, the hand of God? Okay Does God have hands? It's a good question. If he is a spiritual being, we cannot confine him to a physical expression of himself like a body, except in Christ, when He did. And you get to Philippians chapter two. You actually read in Philippians 2 where Paul is talking about how God became human. It says he emptied himself. Do you know what that means? When God empties himself to, to become incarnate in the flesh as this person known as Jesus, the whole glory of God's fullness cannot dwell in a human body except to empty itself because it would completely consume that body. The same God who Moses says, just Moses says to God at Mount Sinai, can I just see you? And God says, no, you can't look upon me for if you look upon me, you'll die. And you've heard me state this before, to look upon the fullness of the expression of God's glory would be like, have you ever seen Indiana Jones? And when they take, and they take um, the lid off the ark, <laughs> ooh, that was scary. Oh! And then they just melt. I think that Steven Spielberg was trying to express the biblical narrative of seeing the full expression of the glory of God in that. I've looked at some of the background on that because God's holiness, which cannot be contained in a box, let's be honest. That's a theatrical thing for Hollywood. But God's holiness and full presence coming out of that The people standing around couldn't contain it. That's why, do you remember Indiana Jones and the lady, I forget her name? What does he say? Don't look at it. And they shelter down because you can't look at the fullness of God's presence and live. This is why countless times, whenever people encounter God in some form, and I mean Yahweh, not some other God, God, Yahweh in some form, they fall flat on their face and they say, Woe is me! I can't look upon God and live. They remember back to the time of Moses where Moses says, Can I look at you? He says, No, you can't look at me or you'll die. So, why am I giving you all this? Sorry, it's a ton of background. God created human beings in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you read in Genesis 2, we read it how they dwelt with God. They walked with God in the garden. God was fully present in his fullness, the very fullness of himself, <coughs> excuse me, in all of his glory with Adam and Eve. And they didn't die in Genesis 2. Why? Because they were perfect. They were untainted by sin, selfishness, anything evil. They were as God had originally intended for all humanity to be, to reflect his goodness and his glory as a complete mirror that had never been broken. But then sin entered the world through the first disobedience where Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were kicked out of the garden, no longer to dwell in God's presence any longer, face to face. In these broken distortions, as if a broken mirror showing different angles and different perspectives didn't reflect quite the same way that they once had. Verse 28. After he created them, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? Well, when a, mommy, when a mommy bird and a daddy bird love each other very much. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna have that talk with you, but that's what that means. God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. For I have given every green plant as food for the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And, it was, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he said that it was, for the very first time, it is very good. He'd said it is good at the end of every day. This is the first time we hear him say it is very good. Because the next day he rested from his labor and creation. It was finished, it was complete. There's another time something was very good, but through the lens of something that was horribly awful where Jesus breathed his last and said, It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It was very good for us. A very dark day. Indeed, because of the death of Christ. C.S. Lewis warned in his 1943 lecture series, The Abolition of Man. It's a really hard read. It's in a book form now. It's really short, but it is extremely hard to read. Pick it up, read it if you need to go to sleep. It's one of those kind of reads. But listen to what he says. In The Abolition of Man, he says that if the old view is correct, meaning the traditional biblical view of mankind, and humanity is fundamentally an incarnate being with a given form and purpose, then any reduction of our own species to the level level of mere nature will ruin us. What he's saying is, in case you missed that, We were created in the very image of God. Biblically, that's what is being said. Male and female to reflect the image of God. We are incarnate beings, not the way Jesus was specifically, but the way we were created to be as humans, male and female. And we are created as humanity with a given form and a purpose in this world. But he's saying if we if we deny that or reject that and we say no, we're just the random uh, equivocation of of uh, natural processes that formulated the right amino acids and the right type of chemical soup that boom, life began to automatically generate. He says if you narrow it down to that, that will ultimately be our demise as a people. Any culture that has promoted that type of theory and or ideology over a given period of time degrades to the point of complete depravity. There's depravity in every society and every nation on the earth in the times past and even now. But if that becomes the dominant way of thinking about humanity, then life has no meaning and life then doesn't hold a sacred place within any society. The old, the young, the unborn, it doesn't matter. You are just some random happenstance that came about and you are one of the lucky ones to have come into being. But you have no purpose Why are suicide rates going off the charts? It's not because of COVID. COVID just perpetuated an ongoing symptom within our society called hopelessness. And why are people hopeless? Because they don't know their purpose. And why don't they know their purpose? Because they're seeking for it in gods that are not real rather than the God who created them in his image. So here's the key point. (laughs) And we'll close up. Above all creation, God created male and female to be his image bearers. Now, how does that happen? Let's take a look. They are uniquely different, but the same. How are they uniquely different, but the same? So how did God create humans? You remember the first human created? We really get, so this is the creation story or the creation account, I should say, Genesis 1. It doesn't really tell us how he created, but you get to Genesis 2, we get a microscopic or a close up view or a telescopic view, or a close up view of this creation process. What does it say? How did God create the first man? Singular. From the dust, he formed them from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Did he do that with any other animal on the face of the earth? Did he breathe over the seas to make them separate from the land so that there could be dry land? Did he breathe, in essence, the stars into existence? No, he spoke them into existence. And I guess if you want to call that breathing with a purpose... But he breathed into the nostrils the very breath of life, into the first man. But how did he create woman? Did he create woman from the dust of the ground and breathe into her nostrils the breath of life? Is that how the story goes? Mm, No. And this is very intentional and very purposeful. When God created woman, he created her from the same substance of man. This is why when you read, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, when woman is finally created, Adam is brought out of the deep sleep, and woman is brought to man, what is the first words out of his mouth? Whoa, man. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> that's so old, that's a dead joke. You know. No, he says... This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, the word we call rib is not a rib in Hebrew. Okay, just so you know. If we're getting real technical here, if you read Genesis 2, it said he took flesh from the side of Adam. Matthew, uh, uh, let, me, let me see, uh, Matthew Henry, the great commentator of the 1600s, he, he writes this, and I'm going to butcher it. Let me see if I wrote it down in here. I might have actually written in here. Yes, it's in the second point, but I'll I'll get to that. Let me, let me see. He says, the woman was made from the rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him or his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to protect him, and near his heart to be loved by him. They are of the same substance. They are created together. And I love this, this imagery. is so It's not just poetic, which it definitely is. It's it's so amazing that God could have created Eve as a different species out of the ground. He could have spoken her into existence. He could have done any number of things to bring her about. But why on earth did he bring her out of the same flesh of the first man? Because they weren't... So different after all. Yes, different, but not different in the way you think, in the way that secular culture has perverted difference. Male and female are biologically different. In many ways they're emotionally different. It's not until the two become one, and I'm not just talking about a sexual union, that's a part of it, but when the two become one that they reflect the true image of God. This is why man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. You know where we read that for the very first time in Scripture? Genesis chapter 2. Before the fall, before sin enters the world, these two together in community were the perfect reflection of the very image of God. Where does the enemy like to get in and corrupt the perfect image of God? Where is the first place he likes to go? He goes into the community. He goes into relationships. He gets you believing that the other person doesn't like you or doesn't love you. He he likes to play on your insecurities. To make you think, because this person said this thing this way, even though it, wasn't, it was kind of an innocuous statement, but the way they said it. He wants you to hone in on the way they said it. Now, that can be indicative of some problem going on you may need to lean into, but we don't do that often. Oh, can you, I can't, they said that to me this way? Well, my and we get really upset. And then what's the next thing we do? We start to manifest realities in our mind that aren't realities at all. Why are they angry with me? What did I do? Well, I'll tell you what, I have reason to be angry with them. They didn't do this or this. Or if they had done this, then I would be okay with them. But... And we start to create a scenario. See, the enemy loves to create scenarios. Go all the way back to Genesis 3, which we will look at in the third week. What does the enemy do? What does the serpent do? Did God really say that if you eat of the fruit of the trees within the garden that you'll die? Did he? Is that what he said? Well, the first woman, Eve, no, 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 it's just a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't eat it or touch it, we'll die. Okay? So what is, what is the enemy trying to do in that scenario? He's trying to divide and conquer, just with a subtlety and a tweak of the truth. It was one of the trees, but not all of the trees, right? It, are you guys with me? Okay, am I, am i I'm just making sure we're still on the same course here. I, I don't want to lose you here. What does the enemy do? He, he comes to the woman and tries to ruin her relationship with God. He, he's trying to get her to doubt what God really said because who did God speak to first about the prohibition and warning about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It wasn't Eve, it was before she was created. It was to Adam. So he comes to the one who didn't truly hear directly from God to ask her this question. And then what happens? She corrects him and said, no, 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 it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't eat it or touch it. Well, Adam had probably given the prohibition, don't even touch it, okay? Let's not even get that close to it. Because God didn't say if you touch it, you'll die. He said if you eat of it, you'll die. Okay? And then what's the serpent do? Oh no, you won't die. See, the reality is, your eyes will be open to the reality of truth. You'll know good and evil. You'll be more like God if you partake of this. Oh, really? Okay. I do want to be more like God. But do you see in the deception that the enemy thinks that if he could trip us up to believe that we can become more like something, to be better at something than we already are as believers in Christ, reflecting the glory of God, he can corrupt us into believing whatever he throws our way. Let's just tweak the Bible a little bit. Let's just tweak it here and there. No, there's biblical scholars, we've got to listen to them. Some of them are actually saying that because God is non-sexed, when he created people in his own image, they actually are transsexual in the very nature. That's one of the theories that are out there today. Or because woman was taken out of man, he was actually a woman too to begin with because the potential for woman existed in him These are theories that are out there, and I'm not talking about in the secular culture. I'm talking about in Christianity. No, they were created very differently, but from the same substance. Just as Father, Son, and Spirit are very different, but of the same substance. Listen to what Phyllis Tribble, she's a biblical scholar. Don't know that I agree with everything she writes, so don't go out and say, I'm a Phyllis Tribble fan. But I do agree with this statement. Listen to what she says in her book entitled, I love the title, God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. She explains that the shift from singular pronouns in verse 27 shows that ha-adam, which is the actual Hebrew word for adam, Ha Adam is not one singular creature who is both male and female. Do you catch what he's saying? Is not one singular creature who is both male and female, like a asexual creature, okay? Is not one singular creature who is both male and female, but rather two creatures, one male and one female. This emphasis is reinforced in the proposal of God that immediately precedes verse 27. There's the plural verb, let them have dominion. It refers back to the singular word, Adam. And God said, let us make humankind, ha-adam, in our own image. Adam, which we ascribe to the name of the first male, is actually also a word interchangeable with humanity in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. See, these shifts, she says, from singular to plural, disallow any androgynous interpretation of ha-adam, as if Adam was male and female before God separated the two. That's not at all what it states. That's not at all the intention or meaning behind the writing in Genesis 26 and 27, When God formed woman from the substance or the side of man, from the flesh of man, he created a completely different creature of the same substance who would, in essence, complete him. It's like the opposite side. It's like if you break a vase and it somehow breaks completely in one piece, not shatters into a million people, but one piece down the middle, you have half of the whole. This is why God says, for the very first time in Scripture in Genesis 2, when everything is perfect, that something is not good. Why is that? It's not good for man to be alone. We'll talk more about that next week, but suffice it to say how was man alone when he had the fullness of God in his very presence? Theologian David Atkinson writes, The God we have come to know and worship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is a trinity of persons in whom loving creativity and personal communion belong together. God is being, capital B, being in communion. This means that personal communion and love between persons is what the image of God is primarily about. Jesus is the image of God in this world because he is in a relationship of loving communion with his Father. What did Jesus constantly say? I don't do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Who is that? The Father. But then in other instances he would say I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's actually relaying the magnificent truth of what the divine looks like. But we have finite minds of our own that cannot conceive of the fullness of the unity of the Godhead as one God we call Yahweh. We see him, and this is why in Mormonism and in Jehovah's Witness um, religion and several others, in Mormonism there are three gods, There's God the Father, there's Jesus Christ, there's the Holy Spirit, all equal but separate. I'm really oversimplifying this, and somebody can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I've read some of this stuff. Jehovah's Witness is God the Father is the top of the hierarchy, then you take a step down in, in kind of authority, and then you have Jesus, who isn't really on the equality with God, Because he said that, right? That's what Paul says in two. So we take him down a notch, and then the Holy Spirit is down one more notch. So it's almost a degradation after degradation. So they aren't equal, but they are divine, just less divine as you go down the steps. But in Orthodox Christianity, from Catholicism to Protestantism to even Orthodox, uh, the Eastern Orthodox religions, God is one. Father, Son, and Spirit. He cannot be separated in essence, but exists in three persons who play a part in that oneness together. This is why the Trinity seems so paradoxical and so hard because it forces you to put on your thinking caps and really go deep. This is why husband and wife Male and female were created to be in union together, and it's in the union together, not just physically, but in every way. Physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, they then reflect that beautiful reflection of the image of God. Marriages are struggling. What do you think that is? Marriages are struggling because We're in a relationship oftentimes and we don't realize it. I think sometimes it's subconscious to get for ourselves what we want out of the relationship. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're not doing this for me. If you really love me, you would know by now, fill in the blank. Have you ever said these or heard these or thought these things? Marriage is about giving. The two becoming one is about pouring into each other rather than taking from each other. I meet with people, couples, all the time. And one of the common phrases I give them or advice I give them is try to outgive each other. Because when you have to make a withdrawal, There needs to be a surplus there to withdraw from. The problem is, in many of our marriages, we get our eyes off Christ, not only as individuals, but as a couple. So our firm foundation is then gone, and then when that's gone, and he's gone from our focus, Christ, then what happens? I become God. And you need to do for me what I expect you to do. And if you don't do what I expect, then you get degraded in my eyes. Yes? Or am I wrong here? I've watched it in 23 years of my own marriage. The worst times we have is when our expectations of the other never get met. Do you know what happens though? I put Sarah Lee on this this throne in my heart that is only reserved for God. And I expect my wife, my, my female, the one female in my life. To be something she can never be for me. I put her in the place of God. And I've already set her up for failure. Rather than setting her up as a helpmeet, a co-equal with me in life together. She should, in the words of, uh, what's that, McGuire? Jerry McGuire. You complete me. You know, she should complete me. But she can only complete me when God is in his proper place in my life. And he is in the proper place in our relationship. One of you believes that. Awesome. I'm going to. Sort of, yeah, that sounded right, yes. There, okay, good. Marriages are on the rocks and are exactly where the enemy wants them because if he can destroy the marriage, he can destroy the family. If he can destroy the family, then he can destroy a society. How's he doing in the United States? You know where you have to start to destroy the family? Redefine marriage. Redefine sexuality. And listen, it's not just in my generation, in our current generation. Go back to the 1960s. I wasn't even alive yet, but my mom was. Sorry, mom. You should turn it off at this point and not watch anymore. Anywho, no, but what was the big buzzword other than anti-war, what was it? Free love, love the one you with, uh, right? I don't even know the 60s music, but I know that was a song. Hey, I sang Fleetwood Mac last week, I think, so we're in good shape. But really, that was it. Hey, love is good. You should spread the love. Woodstock, baby, I've seen pictures, right? And I'm not just scoffing at the 60s, but really, what, what do you see today? It is, it is a continued process of falling away. Oh, in the 70s, no-fault divorce. Do you know after the law stated that there was a no-fault divorce that could be instituted in the nation? Guess what happened to marriages? Like immediately. Oh, they went straight up. Talk about the hockey stick on climate change. This was a hockey stick of marriage destruction. It's bad. No fault divorce. All right, well, you're not at fault. You're not in fault. You can just part ways amicably, and you take this stuff, you take this stuff. You take the kids on this week. You take the kids on this week. Or no, I'm fighting for the kids. You will never see the kid. No, you'll never see. What's the enemy do? Steal, kill, and destroy. The problem is, the second point is, they are uniquely different, but they're equal. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus has this encounter with James and John and John's mother, James and John's mother. You remember they were called the Sons of Thunder because they rode motorcycles? They did. They They had donkeys in those days. Not hogs, not hogs, just donkeys. But seriously, that's not in the Bible. But in Matthew 20, 20, chapter 20, James and John, in one of the gospel writers, they say James and John came vying for position when Jesus gets to his kingdom in heaven. Can one of us sit on your right, one of us sit on your left? But in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew states that they sent their mama, (laughs) which is a sermon in and of itself. Hey, mama, will you go talk to Jesus for us? Pretty please. And so she does. Like any good mama would do, I'm going to go talk to Jesus. Can you let one of my sons sit on your right and the other one sit on your left when you come into your kingdom? You know, you're sitting in, in your throne of glory, but can they have a lesser throne next to you? Verse 24 of chapter 20 of Matthew. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John asked... They were indignant. I had to look up indignant again just to remind myself. They were not happy. Like, are you serious? What about the 10 of us? See, they weren't looking at it from a, you should never ask that question because it's not a right question to ask and nobody should ever be vying for a position or jockeying. But no, they were ticked off because, well, we should get the chance too. Their minds were not on the things of God either. But why were they indignant? Just because of that? But, but Jesus called them all together. He said, "This is a great teaching moment. Here's what we're going to do. Come on, guys, gather around. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Listen to me, and I'll give you some truth. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. And the officials flaunt their, their authority over those under them. Do you know what he's saying? You don't have to go far other than to read the news channels. I don't care if it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. What do the leaders of our culture do? Oh, they pretend to be your buddy. Come here, little fella. I want your vote and your money. But when I get in power, I'm gonna have authority over you. And I'm gonna wield authority whatever way I want to. Right? That's what we experience. That's probably what you feel. No matter what side of the aisle you sit on. But what is Jesus saying? He says, "You know the officials and the rulers. This was 2,000 years ago. Has anything changed? He says, "You know that they lorded over them, and the ones in authority, they flaunt that authority. They abuse the authority they've been given. But I love Jesus that's not right to say. I love it when Jesus says, but, okay? That wasn't funny. But among you, it will be different. He doesn't say that it can be different. He's talking to the 12. It will be, have you ever said this as a parent? Oh, you will take out the trash. Right, it's kind of akin to that. You will clean your room. Oh, no, I won't. Oh, you will. If I have anything to say about it, if you want to live to see tomorrow, you'll take out the trash. It will be different among you. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That word "slave" is doulos. It means bond servant. It means like you're paying a price through your service to somebody to gain your freedom. Do do you catch that? If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. Oh oh! And by the way, and whoever wants to be first among you, you want to get to the head of the line in God's kingdom. Guess what you have to do? You have to become a slave. We don't like that. We're anti-slavery, right? Then somebody will have to give reparations to me. Let me tell you, somebody did. Actually, it's more than reparations. It's salvation, and it's a lot better because he gave us something we don't deserve. For even the Son of Man, listen to what he says, for even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you realize the God we, we worship is a God who said, I love you. You're worth it to me. You're worth my time, my effort, my energy. Your marriages are worth it to me. Your children are worth it to me. Your families are worth it to me. And because you're worth it to me and because I, be- I have created you with purpose, I can't not bridge the gap so that you can have an easier way to me. And so I will take your punishment. You know the one that separated Adam and Eve in the garden and broke their relationship? The one that broke the relationship between man and God? The one that broke the relationship between humans and the dominion over the created order? The one that broke the relationship within the self to where we now call ourselves stupid and idiots and carry this bag of insecurity around? I will take all of that crap upon myself. I'm going to take that. I'm going to deal with it once and for all so that you can find true freedom. You can truly find out what your identity is in me as the man I created you to be or as the woman I created you to be or the couple that is joined together in holy matrimony is created to be. I will show you what that identity, that perfect reflection of who I am looks like by taking your junk upon me so that you can be restored. And you can become one, again, unencumbered because you have me at the center of your relationship. Last, they're unique, uniquely different, but together bearing the image of God. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Is that a you plural or a you singular? Who's he talking to in Philippians? The church at Philippi. Male or female? Yes is the correct answer. Both. What does he tell the church, male and female, at the church at Philippi? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being, appeared in human form, humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on the cross. So what kind of attitude should we have? You, put yourself in the church of Philippi, and he's writing this to us today. You, all y'all, if you're from the South, you still can't get that right. You and all y'all, should have the same attitude of Christ. Now let's put that into the microcosm of our marriages. Wives, you need to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, though you are a woman, you shouldn't be walking around saying, I'm a woman, you can't hold me back. Actually, it's kind of the reverse of that. It's like, it's not that I'm against feminism in its traditional sense that women have equality with men, okay? I believe they do. That is a feminist ideology. But the extreme new day feminism, which has the woman lording over the man, is not something God designed. Never was, never will be. Nor the misogynistic, completely jerkish nature of men who lord over women. And it happens in the church. And the and scripture is wielded as a weapon against women. It's a whole different sermon topic for a whole different day. And I know some of you come from a different background where women aren't even allowed to hold leadership positions within the church. But there's a reason we do. And it's not anti-biblical. And I can show you if you really want to know. And I will try my best not to convince you But to point you to where the scripture states, okay, we are co-leaders together in creation. If we want to continue to perpetuate the curse that happened in Genesis 3, where the woman would desire her husband, but he would rule over her, we can continue that as a church, but that doesn't give God's design back to creation. We, through Christ, have been restored, or at least we should have. When we hold on just to a little bit of the curse, guess what it does to the whole batch? it spoils the whole thing again different subject for a different time and you probably are really angry at me right now if you disagree colossians 1:15 he who is the he jesus this is in the section on the supremacy of christ in the book of colossians he jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation what is jesus he is the very image of god who are we to be says so just looking around The very image of God reflected to the world. And you cannot be that apart from Christ. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, do I need to tell you and define what sexual immorality is? It's anything outside of the context of one man and one woman in marriage for life. That's what sexual immorality is. Simply put, I don't need to go on a rampage talking about all the different types. Suffice it to say, again, it's the marital union together between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that context sexually is sexual immorality. He says, you need to put that to death. You need to put sexual immorality to death, impurity, passion, passion in a bad way evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Do you know what he's talking about there? He said there's a final judgment coming to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. And on that final day, there will be a delineation. Whereas we are together now in this world, functioning as best we can. That's why we are called to be light and salt to the world. We as believers in Christ are separate from but a part of the created order. But we should be reflecting the image of Christ so that others can come to know him. We talked about that last week. 2 Corinthians 3.18, all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. He's reflecting on an image or reminding us of an image where Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. You remember earlier I said Moses wasn't allowed to see God face to face because he would die. But what did God allow him to see? After God had passed by, the full essence of God's glory had passed by the cleft of that rock. Moses saw the after effect, almost the residue of God's glory. And when he came off the mountain down to the people again who were in the valley, he didn't realize it because he didn't say, Oh, my hair's bright and so is my face. He was glowing, he was radiating the glory of God through his own presence because he had been with the Lord. Oh, that's a whole different sermon too. I'm, I'm catching a sermon right there. How many of us reflect that same kind of, that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. And it scared the people so bad. When you are in the full presence of God, no, when you're in the residue of God's presence, it freaks people out. We have yet to experience the residue of the glory of God. Because I guarantee you when that happens, there will be transformation like you've never seen. We, with unveiled faces, the church, the body of Christ, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into that same image. If you're not being transformed, if you're not getting closer to the glory of God's presence day by day, minute by minute, by digging into the word, knowing him while he still can be known. If you're not praying, and I'm not talking about, Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to the nourishment of my body. That's all right. But if that's the extent of your prayers, that shallow communication with God will get you nowhere. Let me close with this. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, as our worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on forward. N.T. Wright, in his book entitled, Surprised by Hope, it's one of those reads, again, that's really complicated, but it's really saturated with a lot of good stuff. He writes, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance and worship to that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. I want you to think of this not only in your individual life, but in your relationships. Okay, let me read that again. Think of this in regard to the most important relationships in your life. Many of you, it will be your marriage. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance and worship to that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, excuse me, but also outward to the world around you. So imagine, you're face to face with that which you claim to be your God, even though you don't claim it, you just live like it, you are now reflecting that image back to the thing itself or the person itself. You remember like some of the things I tried to do, I put my wife on the place where only God is and so I'm reflecting her back. Do you think that goes well? When I'm reflecting back her insecurities, when I'm reflecting back the things that I don't like in her, No, it can destroy the relationship. doesn't mean that you're not honest and and truthful in the relationship. Hear me out. But when my wife has become my God, I'm reflecting her back to her. And let's be honest. Do you like to see the image of yourself and all your blemishes and warts? No, but if I am right place with God and God's in the right place in my life, I'm reflecting him back to him, but I'm also reflecting him back to everybody else. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it. Their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly they treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. You know that we are starting sexual integrity classes, and some of you are yet to sign up because you're letting your pride get in the way. (laughs) Because you're caught in a sex addiction with pornography and it's and it's rotting you from the core. We have a men's group and a women's group. Shameful plug. Go on our website for some anonymity. You can sign up on our groups tab there for that. And yes, it runs in tandem with our marriage groups. Why? Because if if you're worshiping sex or it has that kind of a stranglehold on you, male or female... The rates for female sexual integrity and pornography addiction are off the charts today. Sorry, this is a shameless plug. But the reality is we reflect that which we worship. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it. They treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. See, these and many other forms of idolatry combined in a thousand ways, and all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of whose lives they touch. There's only male or female. No matter how hard or how much you believe it to be otherwise. If you're using God's word as the basis for truth, which I do in every area of life. And you have to err on whatever side. You may come down and no. my truth is my truth. Then where is your truth in you rooted Is it rooted in something that's good, perfect, and holy? Are you good, perfect, and holy? And if you root all truth through you and what you think to be true, be careful you're not living a lie and end up down this pathway that you're so far in deep to sin that you can't turn back or you think you can't turn back. There's male and female. He created the two to become one, and they reflect the beautiful image of God in the right context. If your relationships are struggling, your marriages are struggling, even your friendships, this is interchangeable among those. If Christ is not the center and being reflected from you, then you have some other God in your life that's on that pedestal that's only reserved for him. And you will reflect back that which sits in that place in your life that only God should set. You will superimpose unrealistic expectations on others, on your marriages, and you will lord over each other, demanding from each other what neither one of you can give. Maybe it's time to think in terms of kingdom reality than earthly reality in our relationships. If you're struggling, we have classes, and the classes aren't gonna fix you. I'll tell you that right up front. These classes, the Weekend to Remember we're promoting, they're not gonna fix you. Only Christ can fix you. And you have to have a willingness, even the amount of a mustard seed willingness to try to make this work. That if you don't even have that, what hope do you have? Father, you created us as relational beings. As you created the first male and the first female and the two became one, you showed us the reality of what community was truly meant to be, what marriage was truly meant to be between one man and one woman. And God, since the fall, since the first sin into the world, we've been scrambling and fighting and clawing our way to have our own way, only to find out that wherever we get to that we consider the top is in vain. It's empty. We've tried to lord over others, even though we won't admit it to ourselves, but that's what we've done. Because we demand our own way. We seek our own way. We want what we want, and we want it now. But God, we know that in your kingdom, it is about a complete sacrifice and and releasing ourselves to you 100%, not holding on to our lives, but letting go of them so that they might be saved. And yet we're holding on to the world, and we're losing our soul. We're holding on to our pride and we're losing our soul. We're holding on to our temptations and our sins and we're losing our soul. And we're losing our marriages and our relationships. And the enemy has us exactly where he wants us, fighting against each other because when we fight against each other, we're not fighting against him. Lord, forgive us heal us, restore what's been broken, restore the years the locusts have eaten, and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.